One of the things I have found myself not liking as I've read Burkhoff's systematic theology is that sometimes he defines whatever he's talking about in a given chapter at the end of the chapter. That's very aggravating sometimes when you don't know what that word means in the first place. So sometimes I'll read through the entire chapter and go, what's going on? And then I get to the end of the chapter and go, oh, this, this is what it means all along. And then I feel like I have to reread the chapter. So before I even start with the introduction, I want to go on ahead and spend some time uh, defining what providence is. I, I have this to, to pass around. These are some definitions uh, throughout church history of uh, providence. So that, that way, by the time I actually get to the introduction, you guys will be familiar with the word what providence is. Then, after my introduction, we will visit two catechism questions that we will be studying. I'm going to have this on the board, questions 14 and 15. If you're using the other version, which has the addition of the first Westminster question, that'll be 15 and 16. Followed by how I intend to uh, teach this series. Then I will close us with two things that providence is, is not, excuse me. And I want to say that I am kind of working on the series as I go. So I do have a general outline, but at the same time, I wanted to leave some flexibility, especially since this is my first time teaching at Grace Baptist, doing a Sunday school series. So if we need to readjust, you know, we have this terminology, I might say it multiple times in the military, it's called readjust fire. So I might have to readjust fire as we go along to uh, work on the Sunday school series. Before, before we, I know that's getting handed out, but I'm going to speak a little bit about defining providence. John Piper recognized in his tome 700 pages of a book called Providence that we have a saying in English, I'll see to it. Let me use an example of that saying. If Pastor Thomas were to call me one day and say, Adam, I need you to prepare a Sunday school series on Providence. And I respond, I'll see to it. Does that mean to Pastor Thomas, I will be watching the Sunday school series on Providence? No. Although it would be a very comical story if that were to happen. Instead, he, he would take my response to mean, I would take care of the task you've set me out to do. Piper uses the saying, I'll see to it, with a biblical example that is very similar to the way that we use our phrase, I'll see to it. If we have our Bibles, we can turn to Genesis 22. I know we're very familiar with the story. This is the story of Abraham taking his son Isaac up on the mountain. We're going to be observing specifically verses 8 and 14. In this passage, we have Abraham taking his son Isaac up to the mountain to be sacrificed. And when Isaac asks in verse 7, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham responded, God himself will provide 
the lamb for the burnt offering. Piper observed that the word provide in Hebrew means to see. So a more wooden translation of the text would be, God will see for himself the lamb. And we know how the story progresses. Abraham, by faith, goes to sacrifice Isaac. And the messenger, the Lord prevents Abraham from going through with it. Then the Lord provides Abraham a ram to sacrifice. In response to this grace from God, Abraham says, the Lord will provide. No, it, it reads like this more woodenly. The Lord will see, as it is said to this day, on the mount the Lord shall be seen. Piper closes this observation by explaining that his seeing was his seeing too. His perception implies his provision, his providence. In other words, just like God saw it to Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, when we speak of God's providence, we're saying that God is seeing to it. God is not merely an outside observer to his creation, nor has he orchestrated all things in such a way that they would happen without his hand involved. He is seeing to it. Before I move into the introduction, let's observe a few more definitions. This is part of the handout that are a bit more technical than just seeing to it. First, I would like to state that I could not find a credible source of any early church father using, uh, define, rather defining the word providence. They use providence all the time, the early church fathers, but none of them define it. <clears throat> and you guys will also notice that I'm only using Reformed guys. So I start with John Calvin, then I go to Louis Burkhoff, then I go to R.C. Sproul, and then I use John Piper. I know some of us would say, well, is he really Reformed? You get the point. He comes from the Calvinistic tradition. And the reason for that is because the way that we define providence as Reformed Christians might differ from Christians that aren't Reformed. And instead of going through all of that confusion, so even if they might define it the same way that we would, they would mean it differently. So I want this there to be a consistent consensus. And that's the reason why we're going to be pulling from uh, those along the Reformed tradition. First, we have John Calvin, 1509-1564. If you can look on your paper, and there's a reason why I have this handout today. The providence we mean is not only by which the deity sitting idly in heaven looks on what is taking place in the world, but the one by which he, as it were, holds the helm and overrules all events. Louis Burkhoff, at the end of his chapter, by the way, that continued exercise of divine energy whereby the creator preserves all his creatures is operative and all that comes to pass in the world and directs all things to their appointed ends. 
R.C. Sproul. God's special care of the world and his ultimate supervision of it, along with his provision. And finally, John Piper, the act of purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. I want us to take a minute and reflect on these definitions, and I would like some volunteers to possibly answer this question, what do all of these definitions have in common? God directing all things. God directing all things. Act of participation. Act of participation by God. His sovereignty. So we have his sovereignty, God working through all things. We have God, what was yours, John? Governing all things. Thank you, John. There's this consistent consensus throughout all of these definitions that providence is God's caring for the world, for his creatures, his governing of all of his creatures, and all of their actions. Before transitioning to the introduction, I would like to talk about two types of providences. This will be very brief. Uh, This comes from our confession in chapter 5, paragraph 7. You don't have to flip to that. I'm just going to read it real quickly. As the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a more special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes of all things to the good thereof. In short... We have general providence, which is God's care and protection for all of his creation. And then we have a special providence, which is God's care and protection for his church. The doctrine of providence is one of the many rich doctrines that one can find throughout the scriptures. There are many pastors who make this joke where my doctrine of my denomination is taught from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, until the amen of Revelation. This isn't a joke to say that providence is that. Every word, and the confession says this, we'll talk about this another week, every word in Scripture is delivered to us by providence. And Providence continues to work in our lives after the closing of canon. And providence will continue to work even after the end of the age. Because God 
takes care of his creation and everything that's underneath him. Yet, even this doctrine, like some other doctrines we have observed from our catechism study so far, does contain mystery. And that God has not revealed to us how he does all of his providential work. But this mystery will be discussed later at another week. Let us observe our two catechism questions. What are God's works of providence? We can read this together. I don't know if everybody can read this. Sorry. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And then question 15. By the way, I can never write like this. Providence has given me a wonderful wife that knows how to write like <laughs> What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. These two questions I had to memorize for class. It's also in the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. So um, we could say the Presbyterians at least have this part right. (laughs) Unlike previous catechism questions, I feel as if we should take the answers of the questions that we have here in 14 and 15 at, at whole instead of at parts. For example, and I'm going to use Seth here since his, his is the most recent uh, Sunday school series when lecturing on creation. Seth divided his series in the parts of the answer. If you go back to question 12, you will see that Seth followed the pattern of the answer. We had a lesson on creation from nothing, then how we, uh, we were created by his word, then how the earth was made in a literal six days, and so on. For the majority of this series, I want to emphasize here, the majority of this series, I won't be doing that. Because when we look at how the answer is articulated in the, conf- in the, in the catechism, and you could even say the confession, it somewhat assumes the whole. Really, when you think about God's providence and the way that the catechism presents itself, one section of the answer assumes the other part of the answer when talking about providence. Honestly, when I was writing this down, I was, I was having a hard time articulating what I'm trying to communicate. So I'm going to try to make more clearly what I'm saying by way of example. Let's say there is an unbeliever who's never heard about Christianity before, ever. So you share with them that we believe in a God who created everything from nothing in six literal days. They may not believe that everything came from nothing. So you might want to start there before you even get to start talking about six literal days. One part, then the next part. Whereas when explaining to a non-believer providence, you might say God, the good creator of all things, 
and his infinite power and wisdom does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence. By the way, this is taken straight from our confession, chapter 5, paragraph 1. And you can see that providence assumes that God is most holy. God is most wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. If you go back to any of the definitions, which we've discussed, if you guys just want to look at it while I'm saying this, you will see that providence must have a holy God. Providence must have a wise God. Because if providence had an unholy or an unwise God, then we wouldn't be talking about the Christian God. We'd be talking about a pagan God, a false God. But we're talking about a true God who is holy and wise. This isn't to say wisdom, talking about wisdom in a part, assumes the providence of God. You could talk about that in isolation. But when talking about providence, you assume God's wisdom. It's, it's all-encompassing. And I want you guys to notice this too. Some of the definitions use parts of the catechism's answer to define what providence is. So if we were to say, for example, God preserves all, this assumes providence. Or God governs everything within creation. This also assumes providence. Side note, and this actually goes back to what Mike brought up earlier. What's so interesting about the last two example, examples, God preserves all and God governs all, also assumes his sovereignty over everything. So we can look upon God as a sovereign king who doesn't just sit idly by, but engages with his creation. I wanted to take a moment to make sure that we're, we're following with what I'm saying here. Are there any questions so far? Okay. How then am I going to go about this series? First, and this will be next week, we will briefly survey the parts of the catechism. This is briefly uh, by, by way of scripture. So we're going to just look at scriptural examples of how is God's providence holy? Just, okay, this scripture, this scripture. We're going to do, we're going to do the Seth Popcorn Method next week. A lot of scripture. That's good. I love the Bible, okay? We all love the Bible. If you want a taste of what that looks like, come to tonight's evening service. (laughs) By providence, (laughs) this is happening. I'm going to change my order here for a bit. Then I want to observe... um, I'm going to take a note of this, sorry. Okay. Then I want to observe... The mystery of providence. Um, And this isn't to be confused with John Flavel's The Mystery of Providence. He's using it differently than how I'm talking about it. 
but I will be using John Flavel's The Mystery of Providence a lot. He's actually been a primary source for me. But, I, I, but the reason why I want to do that after briefly touching on the parts of the catechism is because then we're going to be talking about providence all throughout Scripture. <clears throat> from from generation, uh, Genesis to Revelation. And, and the reason for that is because it's going to help answer – it's not really going to answer because it's a mystery. But it's going to help us deal with, rather, those difficult passages like Job's suffering – um, the yeah anyways or like the story that we read with Abraham and Isaac and so on fourth we will observe how providence works within our lives so we're going to go through all like I'm not going to read every verse but we're going to look at providence overview that's actually going to take the longest in this series uh, three to four weeks, I'm assuming, all throughout Scripture. And then we're going to look how providence works within our lives. And I'm going to be relying heavily on John Flavel then. <clears throat> this will complete question 14. This is going to take the majority of my series. Fifth, and this is when we transition to question 15, God's providence towards man by way of entering into a covenant of life also known as a covenant of works upon creation. In other words, we'll be asking the question, what is the covenant of life, and how is, how is that under God's providence? It's under God's providence, he created a way for, for man to fall. Why is that? Well, the answer comes into what I'm going to say the last week. It's Jesus. <laughs> So far, we have defined providence, observed the two catechism questions that we will be looking at in the series, looked at a general outline and purpose for the series, and now I will transition to my last point, which is two things that providence is not. First, providence is not deism. I won't talk about this at great length. Because Dirk discussed this in his last Sunday school series, if I'm not mistaken. I know he talked about it in one of his Sunday school series. But it's vital that we get a refresher on what this is. Deism is the belief that God created all things. And then he disengaged with his creation after he made it. A popular illustration of deism goes like this. God is like a great clockmaker who makes up a wind-up clock twists the wind-up clock, then lets the clock tell its own time. I know it's been a few months since Dirk last taught this, but let me ask this question. Why is deism incompatible with divine providence? Providence. Go ahead. It takes away the caring aspect. It takes away the caring Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So we have, we, have, we have a God who doesn't care about his creation, who doesn't have his working hand within all of creation. We have a God who doesn't see to it. But we have a God who sees to it. Second, providence is not fatalism. I feel like where deism is easy for us to refute as Calvinists, 
Fatalism is a bit more difficult to explain away if you don't know what fatalism is. <laughs> because you will, if you've not already found the charge against Calvinists for being fatalist, we believe in a God who predetermined all things that would come to pass. We believe in a God who elects his saints according to the counsel of his own will. So you will have some people say, according to your view of predestination or election, what does it matter what I do? It's been determined anyways. Fatalism is a belief that all things are predetermined by an external force without purpose. Making all things that would come to pass just to pass. There's no rhyme or reason to it. So with that definition, and I feel like I kind of already said it, but I do want to ask the question anyways. What is the problem with fatalism? It makes God's acts be uh, random. His acts of providence be random for governance, I suppose. All right. And, in, and I think it falls into the same, and I agree with you, it's random, but I also think it falls into the same issue that we talked about with deism. It's a God that doesn't care. He doesn't have a special hand in his care in all of this. God has an end goal in mind, and it's for the betterment of his creation and his creatures and a special providence, a special care for his church. I think that R.C. Sproul and Spurgeon bring great insight to the question at hand. First, I will begin with Sproul. While he is not directly refuting fatalism, I do believe that he's indirectly refuting it all the same. He says this, we are not puppets. He's talking about free will and providence. We are not puppets with no volition, freedom, or power. But we have no volition, freedom, or power beyond what God has given to us. He remains sovereign over all these things, bringing his sovereign will to pass. He's engaging with his creation. Secondly, let us observe what Spurgeon has to say on the topic of fatalism. This is a very popular quote by Spurgeon. Anytime you look up Providence, almost any book that's been published since Spurgeon's been alive, people quote the sermon so much. You will say this morning, our minister is a fatalist. Your minister is no such thing. Some will say, ah, he believes in fate. He does not believe in fate at all. What is fate? Fate is this. Whatever is, must be. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says, whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that the thing must be. Providence says, God moves the wheels along, and there they are. If anything would go wrong, God puts it right. And if there's anything that would move awry, he puts his hand and alters it. It comes to the same thing, but there's a difference to the object. There's a difference between fate and providence. And there's a difference between a man with good eyes and a blind man. 
Fate is, is a blind thing. It is an avalanche crushing the village down below and destroying thousands. Providence is not an avalanche. It is a rolling river rippling at first like a small stream down the sides of the mountain, followed by minor streams, till it rolls in the broad ocean of everlasting love, working for the good of the human race. The doctrine of providence is not that what is must be, but that what is works together for the good of our race, and especially for the good of his chosen people that the wheels are full of eyes, not blind wheels. I think that's a good saying by Spurgeon. In conclusion, I don't think that the average Christian actually struggles with deism or fatalism. This isn't the issue for the average Christian. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. What I do think the average Christian struggles with in our time is a hyper-naturalistic view of the world. I found this so interesting when reading John Flavel, a Puritan writing his book called The Mystery of Providence in 1678, writes that he is afraid that the men of his generation profess to know the God of providence, but in the meantime, live like atheists as if God had no part in the natural world. As far as I can tell, the proto-Darwinistic thoughts, so so right before Darwin and his major publication on the species or what have you, does not take fold until nearly a century later. So we're talking late 1700s. Flavel's writing in the late 1600s. I'm not using this as a moment to jab on Darwinism. That's for another time. What I am saying is that Darwin's views led in part, in part, to the new atheism I grew up with. When I grew up, and I grew up in the 2000s, I mean, it was the thing. I'm 27, by the way. <laughs> let's, let's put a year to that, 97. God's good providence had me born in 1997. <clears throat> new, new atheism is still around, albeit it's not as strong. We've come into a new age in which, like, which whatever you believe is what you believe. And whatever I believe is right, and it offends me if you don't believe in it. I'm going to coin a phrase called post-postmodernism. Anyways. When I think of Flavel and what he said about this, and the fact that he found it worrisome, a man at a time before the internet, VHS, I do know what a VHS is, the moon landing, the telephone, the automotive, and before the United States was even an independent nation. He worried that Christian men lived like atheists. Then I can know for certain in this modern time that men do live like atheists, Christian men. And I think a good doctrine of providence would help them with that. So I pray that this series will bring 
a great comfort either as a reminder or as a part of unnoticeable conviction that God's hand in this creation is present even now and that God will see to it. Before I open up to questions, I want to take a moment to read a psalm. We're going to read Psalm 121. The whole psalm, this is a psalm of ascent. I lift my eyes towards the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. The protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. Amen.